If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 637. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Give me that email address while you're there. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that. Click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. Click on the shop tab. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Lots of great ways to support the show. As always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Send me those show requests. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, click on that little heart, that little thanks button underneath the video. You can send me a couple of dollars that way, too. So there's lots of great ways to support the show financially. But again, that word of mouth, letting people know you like it, letting people know you're interested, that's a great way to grow the audience. And that's what we want to do, right? We want to increase the audience, and we want to get people thinking locally and acting locally. It's now seeming to be a trend. We've had uh, people on uh, on the Glenn Beck Show talking about the importance of Uh, local school board elections, which you, of course, heard on this podcast many times already. So this is how we win, right? This is how we win long-term. We've got to revitalize federalism. And in that that regard, I want to talk about the topic of the day. And this is actually a listener-generated episode. Uh, One of the McClanahan Academy subscribers, by the way, and also a a fan of the podcast, sent me an email. And so when when you put that in the email, hey, I'm a McClanahan Academy subscriber and... I listen to your podcast, and I've got a question. Well, that's going to pique my interest because it means you've you've followed much of what I said. But this is about executive orders, and this actually gets to the heart of some of the problems with American government. And I'm going to talk. I'm going to read the email in a minute, but it gets to the heart of American government. We've got a government in Washington D.C. that has no limits on its power anymore. None, zero. I mean, if you really think there are limits, you're fooling yourselves. There are no limits unless you have a bottom-up movement to cut the power of the center. That's the only way it's going to happen. The general government is not going to reform itself. There's never going to be a situation where one person goes, rides into the executive mansion and changes the general government. There's never going to be a situation when you vote people into Congress that they're going to change the general government. It's not going to happen. We've seen this. right In 1994, I'll never forget this, 1994, for some of you, if you're a younger listener, maybe you don't, You don't remember 1994. And of course, some of my friends who are older would say, well, you got this instance and this time and this instance. I mean, of course, there's 1981 with Ronald Reagan. And then then you had different periods before that. Well, we're going to see some real change in America. This is the whole George Wallace campaign back in the 1960s and early 70s. There wasn't a dime's worth of difference between the two parties because he understood in the 60s and 70s we were in this situation. There's so many examples where you've got uh, people pointing out that Washington, D.C. is never going to be reformed. But 1994, the most recent example, you have the contract with America. The Republican Party rides into Washington, D.C. Supposedly, they're going to change everything. They're going to create a culture and a climate of limited government, real federalism. They're going to to rein in the powers of the president and the Congress, and nothing happened. 
Why? Because they got into Washington and they figured out, hey, this is a pretty good gig. Well, who cares about term limits? Who cares about reining in the power of the central authority when we get something out of it? I mean, we can control the reins of power. We can do things that we want to do. So why would you change that? And this is the real issue. The only thing that will ever check power is power. And so the question, and I'm going to read this, and I'm going to answer the question, but I'm also going to go off on a different tangent with it. But here's the question. He says, now, longtime listener and McClanahan Academy student, I would like to hear an episode on legitimate versus illegitimate executive orders. You stated that a pardon is something the president can constitutionally do. Well, this is true because it's in, it's in, you know, it's in Article 2, right? But are there any other examples of legit executive orders? Is this something the founders debated? I know that executive power is out of control today, but were there legit orders that the president would constitutionally be allowed to give? Is an executive order binding or just a suggestion for Congress? What would be the constitutional difference between a pardon and something like an immigration order? So these are there's a lot of questions in there, right? First and foremost, you have to understand an executive order is not really directed at Congress. It's, execu it's directed at the executive branch, right? So this gets back to, to the heart. Of, but just bringing up Congress is a really important part of this. So would the founding generation be opposed to executive orders? No. They wouldn't have if the executive order was simply directed at the executive branch to implement something that Congress said it had to do. And herein lies the rub, right? The real problem with executive orders is when they have the force of law and the president essentially is making a law out of a decree. So I talked about this in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. In fact, I had uh, a proposed amendment which would make these things illegal. Same thing with executive agreements, which have the force of treaties. That's also a problem coming out of the executive branch. But the issue goes back to Congress. But let me say this about orders. Go back to, say, the Clinton administration. There was an executive order that he issued that one of his aides gleefully remarked simply wiped out the Tenth Amendment. Well, you can't do that. But this is what the presidents think they can do now. They issue executive orders. Or the other thing, this, it's um, also something they use now called signing statements that uh, have the force of law, supposedly. Now, what is a signing statement? A signing statement is something when Congress passes a law and the president signs the bill, but then makes statements about certain parts of the bill that he would say something like, well, I don't agree with this, so I'm not really going to enforce it. That's a signing statement. And essentially, he's saying that I'm voiding, <laughs> I am vetoing parts of the bill without actually vetoing parts of the bill. You see? So back in the 90s, again, you had the Republicans go after uh, and, and want to implement a line item veto. Now, think about this. Bill Clinton's in office, and they gave him a line item veto. Now, that was unconstitutional because you would need an amendment to the Constitution that would allow for a line-item veto, and eventually the Supreme Court correctly ruled that the line-item veto the Republicans implemented was unconstitutional. It's not a bad idea, but the, the fact is the Republicans put it there. And so what the presidents did from that point forward, George W. Bush was uh, you know, just famous for this, or infamous for this, is issuing signing statements. You sign the bill, but then you say, I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. Now, if you're a fan of Bush or, say, the Republicans. Well, this works for you. Yeah, because the Democrats were controlling the Congress at this point, and Bush 
was simply going to issue decrees from the executive branch. Now, he's a symptom of the disease, which is executive government. But in reality, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden and George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan right, and Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon, I mean, go back. Just keep going back. Okay, and Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower. You just keep going back, just work backwards for all these presidents. And Harry Truman, Franklin Roosevelt, all the way back. All of this abuse of the executive branch is really the result of Congress. Now, how can I say that? And this is where I get to that statement where the, where the listener said, well, is it just a suggestion for Congress? No, it's not a suggestion for Congress at all. These things supposedly have the force of law. So what Congress will do, and this is where it all comes back to Congress, a pardon is something different. A pardon is, is in Article 2. The president can grant pardons. Okay, So that's something entirely different. But the Congress will pass legislation and allow the executive branch to implement that legislation and see what the real problem in Washington, D.C. is. And it's why I've, I've thought I've kicked around the idea for years of writing a book, How the Congress Screwed Up America. It would be a huge book because you would have to go through all kinds of things. But you could point out some, some, big, some big problems. The real problem in Washington, D.C. is not the executive branch. It's not the judicial branch. It's Congress. And that's because Congress has abrogated its responsibilities of being uh, a check on the executive branch and the judicial branch. Now, you could say that they've been a little more active in their opposition to politicization of the judicial branch, sort of. The ju judicial branch has always been political. I, I talked about this last week, right? But I mean, the whole point of going after judges who they think are going to be rapidly partisan is something, in fact, they should be doing, right? Judges should not be partisan on the bench. But when you make partisanship uh, either the Constitution or not, either you follow the Constitution or not, and so you have one party that wants to follow it and one party that doesn't, or one faction supposedly wants to follow it and one faction that doesn't, and that becomes politically partisan, that is a problem. But it, it, that all goes back to John Marshall anyways and, and Samuel Chase. I mean, so we, so we have this for 200 years, we've had that particular situation. But of course, the issue with the executive branch goes back to Congress. You see... Congress made the Supreme Court what it was by and, and having that power over the states with the 1789 Judiciary Act. But then you get to the executive branch. Congress has consistently, for 200 years, punted its responsibilities to the executive branch, which makes executive orders more like law than simply suggestions like, we're going to use this paper in printing for uh, you know what we use in our in our departments, right? Or um, we're going to have this rule and requirement for our executive departments. Those kind of executive orders are fine. I mean, you see that in any company, right? Let's say you're working for an organization. You have a president, and the president of that organization says we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, that's like an executive order. These are the things we have to do. That's the policy of the executive branch to do these things 
or for that organization then, which would be the executive branch. And so the president issuing executive orders that manage the executive branch are fine. No one would have a problem with that. But where does the executive branch get the size and scope? Well, that comes from Congress. All of these regulatory boards, all of this bureaucracy would only be possible because, or is only possible, because Congress made it that way. So, for example, just take the New Deal, right? Roosevelt comes into office in 1933, and in his inaugural address, he says he's going to act as a dictator if Congress won't act. Now, there's a problem right there. Roosevelt's saying, I'm going to do an end around Congress. But almost everything he did had congressional approval. Even so far, and John Flynn has pointed this out in his great book on um, the Roosevelt administration, but pointing out that you know, Roosevelt was passing, or the Congress was passing rolled-up newspapers because Roosevelt was writing the legislation and Congress was simply passing it. And if they didn't have the legislation, Roosevelt would say, I just want this, pass the rolled-up newspaper till we get the legislation, and there you go. So the problem is, of course, the executive branch writing legislation, but who can stop that? What entity in Washington, D.C. can stop this kind of stupid nonsense? Well, it's, of course, the Congress. They could have said, we're going to write the legislation. We're going to do our job. We're going to take this role, and you're not going to do that. Right? So when George H.W. Bush launches his invasion of Iraq and gives the Congress a courtesy call, and that's all, because he says, that's all I have to do. Well, where is the problem there? Well, it's Congress not asserting its authority. George H.W. Bush should have been impeached for that. I mean, this is, this is the issue with the executive branch. It's the Congress allowing these things to happen for partisan political reasons. It's something Calhoun pointed out. It's why I'm doing this class at McClanahan Academy on John C. Calhoun. And that class will be out this month. If you're listening to it, if you listen to this podcast on Monday, right? Monday the, the 23rd, this class will be out this month. So it's very short, short order after listening to this podcast. So um, this is why I did the class on Calhoun, because Calhoun was pointing these things out in the antebellum period. The problem really is the Congress, not the president. Think about other things we have going on in Washington, D.C. Well, budgeting. So the way the budgeting process works in D.C. now is, is backwards. The president will write a budget. The president, the, the Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, will write a budget for the executive branch, which basically is the entire government now. The, the, the legislative branch, the budget for that is very minuscule. But the president will write a budget and then submit that to Congress. And Congress will work off that budget. So essentially, the president is writing taxing policy. It's writing spending policy. And then the Congress will work off of that and decide if it wants to keep any of it or not. So Congress still has the power, but they're allowing the president to take the initiative and determine what they will need or won't need in the upcoming fiscal year. And of course, when you see all these roadblocks, it happens all the time, continuing resolutions to keep the government funded, it's because Congress won't do its job and actually come up with its own budget. 
So this is where it's remarkable when you have someone like Rand Paul say, well, look, we need the penny plan. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make the budget, and here's what we're going to do. And people get upset about that. Well, how can Congress come? I mean, we need the president. The president raises taxes. The president lowers taxes. The president spends money. How can the president unilaterally go out and say, we need X amount of dollars? Now, the recent vote for the money spent in Ukraine is a nice example of this. Right? The president asked for a certain amount. The Congress increased it. But the president set the agenda to spend the money. There should be no request at that particular point the, the Congress controls the purse strings. If they thought it was essential to have $40 billion for Ukraine, well, then they should have debated it and come up with it themselves instead of allowing the president to make the request. If Congress, if the people of the United States or the people of the states, right, if you want to look at it either way, if the, if the American people, if there is such a thing, wanted this type of spending... They would agitate for it, and then you would get it. But you see, this is coming from the executive branch. So the real problem is Congress. At the end of the day, when you look at what's going on in Washington, D.C., when you look at what's happened over all the history of the United States, the real problem has always been Congress. Go back to 1791. Hamilton issues his report on the public credit, and he asks for things. One of those things, of course, was a Bank of the United States. Well, how did that happen? Did Hamilton create that himself? No. Congress passed the legislation. And, of course, the president signed it. And ultimately, the Supreme Court upheld it as constitutional. But where is the problem? Well, it's Congress. How about protective tariffs? Are they constitutional or not? This is a question. Well, who passed the protective tariffs? Did the president pass the protective tariffs? No. Congress did. How about federally funded internal improvements? Things like even moving forward to today, things like the interstate system. Well, Dwight Eisenhower wanted the interstate system, but did he unilaterally create the interstate system? No, it was created by Congress. So in doing all these things, then go back to little things like the Interstate Commerce Commission. Well, where did that come from? In fact, that was passed during the Cleveland administration, a president that I actually like a lot, but Cleveland signed it into law. But the ICC was created by Congress. So Congress is creating all of this executive monstrosity, right? They're creating all this bureaucracy. This is what they do. They pass legislation, and that legislation then becomes part of the executive branch. And because there's no, there's no direction or oversight, Congress has even punted that responsibility. They've given oversight of executive branch functions to the executive branch, when in reality, they should have oversight of these functions. This is simply, when you look back at at Rand Paul's opposition to the $40 billion for Ukraine. His opposition was, we should have congressional oversight of how the money is spent. Oh my gosh, you can't do that. You can't have anyone look at what's going on here. There's no oversight. Uh, we can't have oversight of this. Then we can't spend the money right. Right? So this is what it came down to. Rand Paul was simply asking Congress to do its job. And that was scandalous in Washington, D.C. because Congress has not been doing its job for years. Executive branch... Departments, regulatory agencies are part of the executive branch, which is why when the president issues executive orders, they can be seen as constitutional because they're dealing with parts of the executive branch. So, you know, you take OSHA, for example. Well, it's judge, jury, and executioner. It, it creates the laws. It also has a legislative arm. It creates the rules and regulations through 
executive orders, essentially, or through the president appointing someone to head OSHA. And then, of course, that person creates rules and regulations that have the force of law. And then those things become part of that. And then, of course, it decides. It sends out its little its, its inspectors. And those inspectors decide if you violated the law or not. And so all of that, and then if you have, what your penalty is going to be. So all that comes from the executive branch. But all that is created by Congress. They created OSHA. The president didn't create OSHA. They did, right? So the issue comes back to Congress. This is always the problem. And it's why when people point, and look, I'm completely against executive government. I think it's a bad idea. Uh, but at the end of the day, we wouldn't have executive government if we had a Congress that fulfilled its responsibilities according to the Constitution and didn't pass all this unconstitutional legislation. That's what Calhoun was saying back in the 1830s, in the 1840s. I mean, this is, this is the whole point. If you, have, if you have government that follows the Constitution, you won't have all of these executive orders. You see? You wouldn't have all these regulatory agencies. You wouldn't have all this bureaucracy. You wouldn't have any of that. And you can take any type of progressive agenda of the last hundred years, whether it's the square deal, whether it's the new freedom, whether it's the new frontier, whether it's the new deal, the fair deal, the great society, compassionate conservatism, dynamic conservatism, whatever it is, you can take whatever president since Teddy Roosevelt started creating these legislative programs when he became president in 1901, you can take any of that and you can say the real issue is the Congress not stepping up and saying, that's not your job. You can even go back to Henry Clay. You can go back to the American system. You can go back to, the, to um, any of that. Right? You can go back to Hamilton and say, look, the, the Congress abiding by these unconstitutional things and passing them through and then giving authority to the executive branch it didn't have or passing unconstitutional legislation to begin with, that creates the problem of executive government. This is what, again, this is what Calhoun pointed out. Well, the real issue is not executive power. This goes back to the 1840s when John Totter was president, and I've, I've covered that in the Calhoun class. I don't want to steal my thunder there because it's really good. But you have Calhoun criticizing the whole idea of limiting executive government there because he says it's not the issue. The issue is Henry Clay. The issue is Henry Clay. He keeps ramming through unconstitutional legislation, and then, of course, we want to try to limit what the president can do to check that, and so that's the real issue. It's the Congress, not the president, not the courts. It's the Congress. So the question is, what is a legitimate executive order? Well, one that doesn't have the force of law, that acts beyond the bounds of the Constitution, one that simply has an order to uh, an executive department to do something like, um, again, this is the kind of paper we're going to use in the executive department. Uh, these kind of things that you would have a policy for an executive department, that can be a more legitimate executive order than something like we're abolishing the 10th Amendment or something that supposedly goes beyond the bounds of uh, what the uh, executive department should or should not be doing. But again, the Congress creates the monster because it allows the president to have wide discretionary powers in putting into effect things that it does and legislation that it passes for these regulatory agencies, for these bureaucratic systems. I mean, it creates the entire mess and then sits back and says, not my fault. Look at the president. 
You see, that's the dirty little secret in Washington, D.C. It is the Congress's fault. I mean, 99% of the time, it is the Congress's fault for giving the president this much power and authority. It could change all of that. It could, it could change it all. And who else could change that? Well, of course, the states. This is where Think Locally, Act Locally comes in. You're never going to get rid of this monstrosity in D.C. from the top down. It doesn't matter if you vote in all kinds of people that you think are great to Congress. They're not going to do anything about it. So what happens? This is what Calhoun said. you got to work at it from the bottom up. And if the states would simply just stand up and say, you know, all this stuff you're doing, unconstitutional. Not going to follow it. Um, there would be a dramatic political revolution in America, of a bloodless one, by the way, uh, one that could be peaceful and simply just people saying, eh, no. And this is what we saw with, uh, with COVID and masks and other things. People just said, eh, I'm not doing that anymore. And that was it. You see, it showed how, how illegitimate all this power in D.C. really is. When the people of the United States, the separate states, just say, nah, not going to do it. It really is the power. And, I and that was a beautiful part of the entire response to COVID. And, of course, you have states that want to do these things, and so the people might comply with this and say, yeah, we're going to do that in our state. But it is the beauty of federalism that allow these things to happen. And so... That's where it has to come from. It has to come from the bottom up. It has to come from the states having a negative on the center. And by the way, this is the, again, the states could abolish the entire system. The states could call a convention and they could abolish the entire system of government. Right? So who has the ultimate power in all of this process? Well, it's the states. It's it is the key. It's why I've been saying think locally, act locally for years before it became popular and some more mainstream programs. It is the key to changing the entire system. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>